Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered about the usefulness of fishtail chisels? Are you looking for tips on setting up your toothing plane? Are you stuck for ideas for beginner projects? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 29 of the show for June 27th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And if you're interested in supporting the show yourself, head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more there, you'll get access to a once a month patron only video episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So as usual, nothing really going on in the shop this week, still just uh, working on the cabin. That's going to be the uh, status quo pretty much at least until the fall. So uh, I did have some folks email me asking about classes for this year, and I'm not sure where that's going to end up just yet. Um, I would like to do some classes, but um, the earliest that's going to happen is going to be the fall of this year. So uh, if you're interested in classes, just keep an eye on my website um, and also on the um, the website for the Chestnut Creek School of the Arts, and uh, all information on classes will be posted on those two websites uh, when they do become available. But uh, at this point, just really focusing on the cabin and trying to get in there. So uh, earliest that I would be doing any classes, if I get to it th- at all this year, will be uh, closer to the end of the year, probably October, November, December timeframe. So uh, I would, you know, look look around then uh, when I might be offering some classes. So I got some feedback this week from Dom Dudkowitz. Uh, he says that you've mentioned a few times now that there are no modern makers of, of dado planes, and I wanted to let you know that Terry of H&T Gordon in Australia makes beautiful and functional dado planes. I personally own a half inch, and it performs extremely well. So thanks for that, Dom. Uh, I, I always seem to forget about H&T Gordon. Um, I don't have any of their planes because they're they're not really my style. Um, the aesthetic of them just doesn't really appeal to me, but um, I know plenty of folks who have them and use them and they are wonderful, uh, wonderful, beautiful tools. So uh, certainly, you know, don't, uh, don't discount makers from overseas. Um, H&T Gordon makes some fantastic tools. So uh, definitely check them out if you're interested in, uh, in dado planes, um, especially for uh, if you, you like to use a lot of exotic woods, um, Terry specializes in making planes for Australian woods. So you'll find a lot of high angles and things of that nature that are, uh, and, and planes that are really tuned for uh, very figured, uh, nasty woods like the, those that they frequently get in Australia. So thanks Dom for uh, sending that in. So let's get into our questions. The uh, first question today comes from Alex and Alex sent in a voicemail on dovetail layout and fishtail chisels. Hi, Bob. This is Alex from Ohio. I'm listening to episode 27 currently, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how to lay out dovetails when using pins first. 
I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about whether fishtail chisels are useful um, or, you know, not so much. I've seen half-blind dovetails cleaned out both ways, but I was curious to get your take on it. Appreciate the show. Look forward to hearing your answers. Thank you. So layout for pins first, if you're going to cut your pins first. Um, it's, it's really not done a whole lot different than layout for tails first. Um, if you're going to use dividers, you can step them off the exact same way that you would step off um, if you were going to lay out for tails first. But then instead of laying out straight square lines on the end grain, you're going to lay out your angled lines for your pins. Um, and depending on how you step off those spaces, you're going to either use the, uh, the points from your divider for the wide end of the pin or the narrow end of the pin. But other than that, um, it's pretty much the same layout. Um, if you, you step things out along closer to the edge of the board, it'll make it a little bit easier for you to judge, you know, okay, here's the wide end of the pin or here's the narrow end of the pin rather than stepping off right down the center of the board like you might do for laying out tails first. Um, but um, yeah, if you're gonna step them off with the dividers, it's really not done any different than you would um, if you were going to do uh, tails first. A lot of times I don't even do that. I just uh, let kind of lay it out by eye. Uh, Frank Klaus has a, a really great method, and it certainly takes some practice to get things evenly spaced. And with practice, you can get them evenly spaced enough by eye that um, that you won't be able to tell that they were laid out by eye and not super precisely. Um, but most of the time, you know, when I'm doing that kind of dovetail layout, um, I, I'm not one of the folks that likes to show off my dovetails. Uh, most of the time I try to hide them. So I cut them for their utility and their strength. And then usually I'm covering them up with a molding, burying them inside a case, you know, if they're drawers or something like that. So um, I'm not usually showing off my dovetails, so I don't worry too much whether they're perfectly spaced or laid out, you know, all that perfect. Um, but if I do want them evenly, you know, really evenly spaced, I'll step them off with dividers just like I would if I was cutting tails first. Um, just knowing that whatever I step them off at is either going to be the thick side of the pin or the thin side of the pin. And I'll adjust the way that, that they get stepped off, you know, to, to determine what I want that to look like, whether I want it to be um, the thin side or the thick side of the pin. And that's about it. It's about this, the, the same thing. Um, in terms of fishtail chisels, I've survived without one. Let's see, I've been woodworking for almost 30 years, 20, 27 some odd years. Um, and uh, I've been woodworking just using hand tools for about 17 years. And uh, I survived without a fishtail chisel for a long, long time. And I just use narrower chisels to clean out the corners of my um, half blind dovetails. I did get a Lee Nielsen fishtail chisel a couple years ago, um, primarily to, you know, just to see what the hype was about and see if it made my, my job any easier. And I don't think it really does. It's an, it's a luxury tool. It's certainly nice to have. Um, and it, you know, it makes it a, a breeze to clean up the corners of half blind dovetails. Um, but just like I would be if I was using a thinner chisel, you know, you find yourself switching back and forth between chisels, you know, with a wide one to clean out the majority of the waste. And then you've got to switch chisels to either a narrow chisel or a fishtail chisel or a pair of skew chisels if you, if you work that way 
to clean out uh, the corners. So, you know, do I think it's necessary? No, not at all. Um, is it a luxury tool? Absolutely. You know, is it nice to have? Yeah. You know, it's it's a beautifully made tool. Um, it's really pretty to look at. And it's, it's just a really nicely made tool. Um, it works just fine. But narrow chisels work just fine, too. So, you know, if you don't want to indulge in the, the luxury item, there's certainly no need to do so. Um, you can clean out half-blind dovetails just fine with, a you know, like an eighth-inch chisel um, without any type of skew or fishtail. You can also make your own fishtail chisel if you get yourself a, a half-inch or, or so um, regular straight chisel and just grind the sides into a fishtail shape. You don't have to necessarily buy an expensive uh, specialty-made tool. You can buy an old half-inch regular bench chisel and grind uh, grind that fishtail sh- that fishtail shape yourself um, for just a couple of bucks and have a fishtail chisel. So uh, nice to have, but far far from necessary. Really a luxury item. So our next question comes from David Perrot. David says, "Could you talk about toothing planes? I just got one and would like some tips on setting it up and sharpening the blade. I hollow ground the blade like my bench planes." but think I should be getting better results. My plane has a small piece missing from the front of the mouth. I don't want to plane the whole sole down just to remove it. So should I insert a mouth patch or just leave it as is? So I would leave the plane as is. Um, You know, um, toothing planes don't typically have really tight mouths because it's really not necessary. They're pitched at such a high angle. And we're talking about antique toothing planes here. you know, not like a, a toothing blade for a bevel up low angle type um, plane like what they're what you're finding today, um, but an actual vintage wooden toothing plane. Um, they're they're pitched at very high angles. Usually, you know, a lot of times they're approaching ninety degrees. Sometimes they're past ninety degrees. Actually, they're they're more leaning forward because they're essentially a scraping tool. They're not cutting at all. They're really more of a scraping tool. Um, so I would not expect to get really pretty shavings out of a, a toothing plane. What you're really going to get are scratches, um, and, and spaghetti strands. And it really depends on the, the bed angle of the toothing plane, how aggressive it's going to be. If you've got one that's bedded at, you know, 75, 80 degrees, but it still has that slight lean, um, towards the heel of the plane, that's going to be a really aggressive plane. Um, and it, it, I find that when they're that aggressive, they can leave kind of a, um, junked up surface and, uh, and really be a little bit more difficult to use. I prefer the toothing planes where the blade actually leans forward just a little bit. So it's past 90 degrees. Um, and it's very mild. Usually it's, you know, it's just a couple degrees past 90. Um, but I think that the plane tends to be more precise that way. Um, I think they're a little easier to use. Um, in terms of sharpening the blade, it sounds like you sharpened it just fine. You sharpen it exactly like you would sharpen your bench plane irons. Obviously, you just don't touch the back of the blade because you don't want to remove the teeth. Um, you want to leave those. So you can hollow grind it. Um, when you Then when you hone and you hone that hollow grind, just make sure you're honing all the way past the bottom of that the the teeth essentially the the bottom of the gullet I guess you could call it 
um, so that you have a, a good flat and lots of support there. And the thing with the toothing plane is you want it set for an extremely light cut. They're not meant for hogging off material. They're really meant for a very light cut just for scratching up the surface. And you're going to get these little spaghetti coils essentially that are just going to come from the tips of the teeth, not going to cut very deep. Um, my guess is the problem that you are having with the plane is probably because you have it set for too deep of a cut. That's usually what I find um, with a toothing plane when it doesn't seem to be doing what you want it to do. It's usually because it's set for too deep of a cut. You also don't want it to have any camber. You want the sole to be flat and you want the edge of the iron to be um, straight. And when you sharpen it, you know, make sure you've got a good sharp point on all of the teeth, just like you would have on a saw, essentially. Um, if it's not cutting well, you may not have either hollow ground or honed all the way to the edge. And it can be tough with a toothing plane to tell because you don't have, you're not going to really raise a burr. Um, you will, but it's tougher to tell because you've got points instead of a straight uh, straight cutting edge. So you really need to make sure that you hone the blade all the way to the tips of the teeth so that you have good sharp points. Don't worry about taking the burr off the back or anything like that. Uh, don't You don't have to touch the back of the blade at all. You want good sharp points on those teeth. Um, and if the teeth do not come to sharp points because they were broken off or just were honed incorrectly before, you're going to need to grind that blade back so that you do get to all sharp teeth. You're going to have to grind and hone so that all those teeth come to sharp points. You don't want any flats on there at all. You want all the teeth to come to sharp points. Um, and then set it for a really, really light cut. Uh, it should almost look like dust coming out, really. It's not going to look like a shaving. You're not going to get shavings. You might get some spaghetti strands, depending on the wood species, but it's really going to look like dust until you look really close and then you might see some spaghetti strands. So um, try backing off the iron. Make sure that all the teeth come to points and that you don't have any flats on the teeth um, and set it for a really light cut and see if that doesn't help because usually that's what seems to be the problem is that the blade either isn't honed all the way and you have flats on the teeth or you've got it set for too heavy of a cut and you're trying to remove too much material. So our next question comes from Hugo. He says, can you please talk about miter boxes like the old Miller's Falls and Stanley? Are they any good? What should I look for? What about reproducibility of cuts? How do you sharpen the saw? I'd like to replace my DeWalt for small production cuts. So the old miter boxes can certainly be very good. I used to have an old Stanley. I don't remember what the model number was, um, but it was, a, it was a good, solid miter box. Um, they can also be junk. Um, if they're loose and if if they don't lock down uh, well, if they're worn out, um, you're not going to get good accurate cuts out of them. And uh, if they're missing parts and the saws don't slide smoothly, um, you know, that's also going to cause you problems. Um, when you're looking for one, you want to make sure that the one that you get is not missing any parts because if it is, the parts that it's usually missing, it has to do somewhere with where it's holding the saw or where the saw is moving through. Um, and if there's any looseness in there, if the saw is allowed to move at all, you're just not going to get accurate cuts. It's not going to guide the saw well. Um, so you want to make sure that you're not missing um, any of the parts, especially the saw guides. Make sure that the, um, the saw that comes with it is the saw for that miter box. If it's not, 
if it's not the right size saw, you could have problems. If the saw is too big, um, you're going to limit your depth of cut or it may not fit in the saw guides. If the saw is too small, you may not get to the bottom of the cut. The, the guides, the guide arms themselves may bottom out before the saw cuts all the way through the piece. So you need, you need to make sure it's the right size saw for the particular miter box that you have. In terms of sharpening the saw, I sharpen it crosscut. I will sometimes put a little extra fleam on a miter box saw because I know it's really just going to be used for precision crosscuts. Um, it's going to be used in the miter box. So um, I, I'll use a little extra fleam to get a little extra, uh, extra clean cut because um, it's mostly a crosscut what you're making. So um, you want that cut to be nice and clean if you want it to fit off the saw. Sometimes your miter box might be tight enough and precise enough that it'll fit off the saw. Other times it may not, um, and that that's just going to be um, from one model to another. Some models were a little bit higher end and a little bit more premium and a little bit more tightly made, uh, and then the lower end models tend to have a little bit more slop in them. So it really depends on the model that you get, um, and I'm not up on all the different miter box models, so uh, I'm not really... Uh, that I can't really answer, you know, or give you a recommendation on which one you should get because um, I just haven't used them all. In terms of reproducibility of cut, um, some of them actually did come with some some small stops that you could put on there to make, re, uh, you know, multiple cuts at exactly the same length. There's no reason you couldn't just use a spring clamp and a block of wood to clamp something to the fence if you're making a bunch of small parts identically sized. Um, and if you need to make something bigger than the fence that's there, you could certainly build um, some type of outfeed, I guess you would call it, um, to extend the fence and the table and clamp a stop block to that. So um, just like a regular, you know, a power miter box, you can certainly make reproducible cuts in the same way just by using a stop block. And I've done that before, and it, it actually works quite well. So our last question comes from Joe Giada, and Joe sent in a voicemail on uh, where to start with projects. Hi, Bob. My name is Joe, and I'm in Tennessee. My question is for the absolute beginner. Literally, where do you start? I want to begin my woodworking journey. So what basic projects can help me learn good technique and build a skill set? I've got a very basic kit and a small place to work in my garage, which still needs to be used as a garage. I've read a lot of books, old and new, I've watched enough YouTube to need glasses, and I've listened to enough podcasts to make AT&T rethink unlimited data plans. But I've not built anything yet. I feel paralyzed by all the choices. So where do I begin? Thanks for all you do. So the old analysis, uh, analysis paralysis. Uh, I think we've all been victim to that at some point. Um, but I think it's it's one of those things that a lot of beginners fall victim to because, uh, as Joe said, you can watch a lot of YouTube, read books, magazines, blogs, whatever, um, listen to podcasts, and there's all this information, and it's just information overload, and you don't know what to do next. Um, so it, it's a good question, and there's a lot of options, and there's a lot of possibilities for places you can start with projects. Um, the first thing I would suggest is to, to look around your house, you know, or, or your apartment. Is there something that you need? Um, and if there is, 
is it something that you might feel comfortable building? Is it simple enough that you think you could uh, use it as a first project? Don't worry so much about whether it's going to come out perfect. I think a lot of us get um, get looking at like stuff in a, in the store, things that are coming out of a factory or that other woodworkers are made, and we say, you know, well, I'm not that good. I can't make it that good, so I don't want to make that yet. Um, and I think that really gets in the way of your progress. Um, you know, if you need something basic, you need a basic cabinet or you need a basic table or chair, build it. And if it doesn't come out that great, okay, that's fine. If it's, as long as it's functional, you've got something you can use for now and then you can build it again, build another one, build a better one, build a different one. Um, you know, you don't really need to start out with anything specific. Um, you know, just if you're, if you have the confidence to go ahead and try something, just go ahead and try it, jump in and try it. Um, you know, nobody who has ever started in this, this hobby, um, you know, built a, a Bombay secretary their first time out. Um, and if they, maybe they tried to, but you know, it didn't come out exactly the way they wanted. None of us ever got something 100% perfect the very first time, uh, that we built something. So there were, every one of us has gone through and, uh, and burned projects, uh, thrown them out after a couple of years, you know, what have you. So I would say you don't necessarily need to pick anything uh, specific, um, but I'll go a step further and I will give you a couple of ideas. This isn't, you know, exactly the first time that I've been asked this question and anyone who's been in the hobby for a, a while um, and in the craft for a while will, will have undoubtedly had someone ask them this question, where do I get started? What are some good basic projects? Um, and I actually had it's funny that you asked this question because I had an, an idea for a book several years ago and I actually started writing that book. I just, uh, it kind of fell off the radar and it's not, it's not something I really kept up with, but it was essentially what you're talking about, where to start as an absolute beginner, what types of projects and things like that. Um, and I'll, so I'll give you a couple, a little rundown of sort of how I, I broke it down or started to break it down in the outline. Um, you know, one of the first things that I went over was um, how to saw accurately. So one of the the um, yeah, sorry, one of the the exercises was to make a bench hook. Um, you know, it's a it's an appliance that every shop needs. You need to make a couple of cross cuts, but if you've got the layout tools and, and, uh, and Joe did, um, he did go over, you know, he does have some tools and a workmate, um, some layout tools and, and, and saws and planes and things. So it's not the tools that he's looking for. He's looking for actual projects. Um, you know, start out by making something simple like a bench hook. Yeah. You have a workmate, but you know, a bench hook is something that you can use out on a picnic table somewhere. Um, you know, you can use it on your workmate to help you hold things. Um, and it's something that will, you know, use your layout tools, make some square lines, but it's not something that when it goes together has to be a hundred percent square or perfect. The cuts don't have to be, you know, dead on accurate. Um, but it's something that's going to give you some practice making some cuts. Go to the home center, get yourself a piece of one by pine or, or oak or poplar, make some cross cuts, make a few, 
short rip cuts for the cleats, uh, the cleat and the fence, and uh, knock yourself together a bench hook. It's a great exercise for sawing. Um, similarly, a great exercise for sawing and and or planing um, would be to make a pair of winding sticks. Making a pair of winding sticks is going to teach you how to plane a straight edge. It's going to ha- teach you how to make two edges that are plane that are are um, parallel to each other, and that's going to be a useful tool. You know. I have a fancy pair of winding sticks that, you know, have inlay in them and, and things like that to, to make sighting across them a little easier, but winding sticks don't have to be fancy. All they have to do is, all they have to be is a pair of sticks with, and they both have to have parallel edges. They don't even have to both be the same size, but they just have to have parallel edges in order to be functional winding sticks. So make yourself a pair of winding sticks. Um, to teach yourself how to plane a straight edge and how to plane one edge parallel to the other. Um, and that's a great exercise. And you get a couple of functional workshop appliances out of those exercises. Now, once you have your bench hook and your winding sticks, move on to something that's a little bit more of a challenge. For example, um, a rabbited and nailed box. Um, look at something like uh, Peter Follensby's reproductions of his 16th century, uh, or yeah, 17, 17th century boxes. They look very intimidating at first because of all the carving, forget the carving, ignore the carving and just look at the way the box is built. You have a front, a back and two sides. The front and the back have rabbits in them. And then the front and the back are nailed to the sides. Make yourself a little nailed together box. If you don't want to use nails, make the rabbits and pin the sides with dowel stock or brass pins or, or something a little fancier to make it look nicer. Um, but use your imagination, you know, teach your a simple project to teach you one skill at a time. That box, simple rabbited box is going to give you more practice with sawing, more practice with planing. And then it's going to introduce your first bit of joinery, the rabbit. And you, Learn to make the rabbit, assemble that box, nail on the bottom, make yourself a simple hinged one board top, um, and you've got a box that you can then paint or stain, carve it if you're so inclined. Um, there are, are lots of things that you can do with that. Once you've completed that box, think about something else, a, a new, uh, another type of joinery you want to learn, and and kind of go in stages. I would start with joinery like rabbits and grooves first because they tend to be the simplest to make after the rabbits and and the grooves uh, maybe dados i would go on to something like dovetails dovetails are actually very forgiving people get hung up on the look of the dovetail they want these gap-free airtight joints but a dovetail joint a functional dovetail joint does not have to necessarily look pretty a functional dovetail joint does, you know, you can get away with a couple gaps by putting in some wedges or shims to close things up and the joint will still be functional and you'll be learning as you go. Then maybe move on to a small table uh, with mortise and tenon joinery. My opinion, mortise and, tenor, mortise and tenon joinery is much harder to make by hand than dovetail joinery is to make by hand. So I would actually look to do the dovetails first and then the mortise and tenon joinery afterwards. Yes, the mortise and tenon joinery is invisible, but 
to make mortise and tenon joinery well and get a, a, a table base to join up square, I think, is more difficult than to do dovetail joinery because the dovetail joinery, in my opinion, is more forgiving, even though it's visible and it shows, it's more forgiving than the mortise and tenon. Um, because if you get a sloppy joint in the mortise and tenon, there's not really any good way to keep it from being sloppy. You, you don't have the clamping surface. You can't get shims in there. Once it's, uh, once it's cut, you basically have to glue pieces onto your tenons and recut them. So, um, but kind of progress along those lines and, and, you know, maybe pick one joint, pick a project that you can do with a one particular type of joinery that's going to teach you that type of joinery. Want to learn how to do dados? Maybe make a little wall shelf. Uh, we talked about rabbits. Uh, want to learn how to do dovetails? I did a, uh, a sliding lid candle box on my, on my blog. Um, and I did a class on it. It was a one day class. Um, and it was teaching through and half blind dovetails. That's essentially what the class was. And as part of that, we built that sliding lid candle box. Great project for learning how to do dovetails. Uh, mortise and tenon joinery. You can make an arts and crafts style frame, like a picture frame or painting frame with some through um, tenon joinery or blind mortise and tenon joinery. Or, you know, a small table is great, like a shaker table with no drawers or anything, just to focus on that mortise and tenon joinery. So there's a lot of ways you can go. Um, I would say as a beginner, what's going to be more important than the project you pick is going to be the wood that you pick. Stay away from cheap, inexpensive, and free wood. Um, a lot of folks will, will think, oh, you know, I got this pallet wood for free. You know, it's a great for learning on. Totally, totally, completely disagree with that line of thought. Pallet wood is typically very difficult to work with as a hand tool user. It's not the greatest wood in the world to begin with. And then when you're going to try and plane that and it's going to have nails in it and the grain's going to be all squirrely, it's probably going to be full of knots. Um, pallet wood is a terrible wood to work with um, as a beginner. It's terrible wood to work with anyway, but as a beginner, it's it's extra terrible to work with. Um, pine is a, a decent wood to start with, but try to get something that is not that doesn't have too many knots. Stay away from woods that are really hard, oak, maple, hickory. Um, I wouldn't go any harder than something like walnut or at, at the hardest, cherry. Um, but if you can get yourself some walnut or some mahogany or some poplar, those are fantastic woods to work with hand tools. Um, and as a beginner, they're going to give you, working with, with woods that are really nice to work with, are going to give you a lot of confidence. If you can get a nice piece of mahogany or a nice piece of poplar, planing that is going to be a dream. Sawing it's going to, you know, it's going to take your knife lines from your layout really nice and crisply. Sawing it is going to be easy. Uh, uh, cutting the joinery in it is going to be easy. Much easier than something like oak or uh, or maple, where you just don't have the forgiveness because you don't get the compression in the fibers. Pine, like I mentioned, is great, but you have to be careful with pine because pine can be, you know, a little bit temperamental. You need really, really sharp tools with pine. Um, and some beginners find pine to be frustrating because it, it'll dent, it'll chip, um, you know. So maybe something like poplar or, uh, or mahogany or walnut, great woods to start with as a beginner. Um, and, and don't be afraid to spend money on wood. You know, the wood, as they say, 
grows on trees. We can make more of it. Um, so don't be afraid of wasting wood. You're going to ha- just like, you know, looking at YouTube videos or, or buying books or magazines, you have to invest in yourself and invest in, in building your skills. If you want to get better, you've got to get out in the shop and actually start doing some of this stuff. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you have the material to do so. So don't be afraid to invest a little bit of money in some decent wood and you're going to have a lot easier go of it if you have some decent material to work with than if you try to salvage some some really crappy material so um get yourself some good material and uh and you know then just pick a joint and you know try to build something around that joint whether it be a box or a shelf or a small table or what have you um that focuses your skills on just that one particular one particular type of joinery um, and I think as you as you progress through some of those more basic projects, you know if it's not something you need, you give it away. Um, you know if it if it is something you need, great. But if it's not, don't worry about it. Just get out there and build and have fun, and that's really what it's all about. Don't be afraid to make mistakes because you're going to. You know, all of us still make mistakes. Uh, go watch my my last video that I did on uh, the compound angle dovetail demonstration. And uh, and I I cut the wrong side of the line. I cut out the wrong waist. I was, I think I was cutting out the pins, and uh, and I cut out the wrong waist. So I had to completely remake a piece. Um, you know, it happens. Even after twenty five, thirty years of woodworking, um, you know, we still make these mistakes. So don't be afraid of making mistakes. Don't be afraid of wasting wood. Uh, you can always get more. Uh, and you know, you make the mistakes and you learn from them. So, uh, you know. That's that's about it. You know, just just get started. Whatever you're going to do, uh, doesn't really matter what you pick as a project to get started with. Pick something basic and just get started and give it a try. So that's it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfindwoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. Or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is on revisiting old projects. Uh, I, I recently paid a, a visit back to New Jersey. I stay with my mom for a couple of days. And uh, she still has a, a bunch of stuff in her house that I built. Um, my, my very first project, as a matter of fact, which was a, a coffee table that I built for her when I was in high school. I was 17 years old. Uh, and it was my first big piece of furniture that I actually built. And, uh, you know, still looking at that project today, I, I, I really still like the, the piece. Um, of course, there's some things that I would do differently and, and change. But, you know, there were some limitations at the time. So uh, I dealt with those limitations. But, um, you know, I, I won an award for that piece back when, uh, when I was in high school. And um, she still has it in her living room. You know, she wanted a... A, a square coffee table, and uh, I so I designed and built this square coffee table, oak coffee table for her, and uh, I thought it came out really good. And of course, there were some things that I would change, and she's got some other things in her house that I had built as well some some kitchen cabinets, a, a bathroom vanity, um, you know, just different things that I have built throughout the years. And uh, and I always look at these these different pieces when I'm back at her house and. Um, anytime that I'm, I'm visiting somebody who has something that I've built, um, and I always look at them and, you know, there's things that I learn. I look at, at some of my old projects in my own house 
um, and, and things that I learned from them. Um, and there's, you know, there's lessons that we can pick up by revisiting our, our own projects and our old work. And I want to talk about a couple of the lessons that I've learned and the things that I observe, um, and, and make note of when I revisit some of my old projects. So one of the things that immediately jumps out to me with a lot of my older projects is that I needed to pay better or closer attention to wood selection and grain selection when I made some of the pieces. Um, you know, at the time I was a bit limited, you know, I was working with, um, pieces, you know, wood from the home center and, uh, on a limited budget. So, you know, some of the, some of what I would consider today mistakes or, or just not necessarily mistakes, but things that I could do better, um, were really done because of, of budget constraints at the time. But, um, you know, I, I look at things like face frames for a cabinet or, or a door frame for a cabinet door. Um, and I notice things like the grain pattern in the door frame itself may not be straight. You know, I might've used flats on stock for the rails and styles of the door frame. And these days that's something that immediately jumps out at me. As soon as I, I see a cabinet, um, a face frame or, or uh, a cabinet door frame that has, you know, inch and a half, two inch wide or so rails and styles. And you see this flamboyant flats on grain, uh, cathedral grain in the rails and styles. And to me these days, that absolutely looks terrible. Today, when I make face frames or uh, door frames, I always try to use quarter sawn or riff sawn stock or grain, at least, you know, the, the riff sawn edges of, of flat sawn boards for the rails and styles because you get nice straight grain uh, that is under in, uninterrupted throughout the length of the rails and styles. And to me, it just looks so much better when you use nice straight quarter sawn or riff sawn stock for face frame parts. Table legs as well is, is a place where I prefer to use really nice straight grain stock. Even if I'm, you know, if I'm going to make a cabriole leg or a straight shaker style leg, I usually try to look for riffs on stock because it gives you nice straight grain in the legs. And I think that looks so much better than using flats on stock and having this cathedral grain in the legs. I also pay more attention to wood selection itself. Um, you know, back when I was first starting out, I might've tried to save some money by buying pine or poplar and, uh, and staining it or dyeing it. Um, and what I found is that no matter how hard I try, you never ever get the look you're really after when you try to stain something to look like something else. Um, you know, it's one thing when you, when you take a piece of pine and you want to give it a little color to look like older pine, that's one thing, but to take a piece of pine and then use a dark stain on it to try and make it look like a walnut or a cherry or something like that. Uh, anytime I've tried to do that, it's always been a failing endeavor. Um, and I would have just spent much less time and gotten much better results if I would have just bought walnut or cherry in the first place. One of the other things that I've found with, with some of my older painted pieces, um, is that what some of my earlier, or not even, some, not even my earlier pieces, but some pieces that I've done, um, were painted with regular latex paint from the home center. Sometimes this was done for a reason. Um, you know, one piece that I built was, um, was a built in for our old house in New Jersey. So 
the piece really needed to match the look of the trim. And of course, all the, the, the baseboard and the window and door casings and everything in the house were painted with a, a, uh, a satin latex paint. So I painted this built-in cabinet with the same satin latex paint to match the, um, the trim work in the house. Um, and to this day, when I look at it, it just looks absolutely awful to me. Like no, no more will I ever paint furniture with latex paint from the home center. Um, it just doesn't work. It's terrible. Um, instead I, if I'm going to paint a piece these days, I will almost always, almost 100% of the time use, um, a traditional milk paint. I just think it has so much more character. It just looks so much better. You don't get a, a thick plasticky looking buildup on the piece. Um, and, and it just looks so much better than, than, uh, the latex paint from the home center. Um, another option that I might sometimes use is to make my own paint using a, a varnish and mixing in my own pigments. Uh, but more times than not, I'm just using a traditional milk paint. Um, but all the pieces that I've done with latex paint have just come out terrible. And, uh, and it's just one of those things, you know, there are people I'm sure that can get a good finish on a piece of furniture using regular old latex paint from the home center. I'm just not one of those people and I don't want to put in the time to learn how to do it because I am very happy with the finish I get when I use milk paint, traditional milk paint. So these days I will avoid latex paint altogether unless I'm painting drywall. Uh, that's about the only place that I will use latex paint. Similarly, these days I don't, I tend not to use pigment stains like what you find in the hardware store. Um, you know, your Minwax stains, your Cabot stains, Olympic stains. Um, I typically don't use pigment stains in, uh, on my furniture, on, on any of it. Um, if I need to add color to the wood these days, I am typically using some type of dye, whether it's a water soluble or, uh, or aniline, alcohol soluble aniline dye, uh, something like a WD Lockwood dye that uh, tools for working wood cells. I've had so much better results using dyes than I have with stains um, that I, I don't typically use pigment stains anymore. Um, and I also don't dye and stain certain woods. Pine is a good example. Again, if I want to add a little bit of color to pine, um, you know, I might use a little bit of oil and, and then, uh, so shellac over top of that to, to give it that little aged yellow, amber pine look. Um, but I don't like staining pine. What I have found staining pine and, and this is not news. I mean, this is, this is known to any, uh, anyone who's versed in finishing, but when you apply stains and dyes to pine, the growth rings tend to reverse. And what I mean by that is if you look at a, a piece of unstained pine, you have these different colors between the growth rings. So you'll get like this darker yellow growth ring and a lighter yellow growth ring. Well, when you apply stain to pine, the dark and the light areas switch because the light areas are of the pine are actually softer wood and they absorb a lot more of the stain or dye than the naturally darker areas of the pine, which absorb much less. So the light areas become the dark areas and the dark areas become the light areas. Um, and it's, it becomes very obvious to me when I look at it, 
that that happened. Um, and it's just not a, a look that I care for. So um, I typically try not to stain or dye pine any, any more these days. Um, similarly, um, plywood. I don't use a lot of plywood, but if I'm building, you know, a kitchen cabinet or, um, you know, a bathroom vanity or something like that, I'll probably use plywood just because it makes the job simpler. Um, but I don't like to, to apply stains or dyes. They, the plywood just doesn't seem to take stain or dye very well, especially the junk that you get in the home center. The veneers are so thin um, that the dye and the stain bleed right through and you get blotchiness and it, it just doesn't look really good when when you do that. So um, I typically don't stain or dye plywood these days. Uh, if I'm going to build something like that, I'll paint it. Um, and if, if it needs to be stained or dyed, um, I'll try to use hardwood for the parts that are going to be stained or dyed so that it takes the finish, it takes the color nicely instead of uh, getting all blotchy and nasty like most plywood tends to do. Another thing that uh, when I look at some of my older projects that I notice, um, and this is typically from uh, from the era before I started using a lot of hand tools, is over sanding. Um, a lot of people can be guilty of this because you know you get the random orbit sander out and you just go to town get everything nice and smooth and ready for finish and what i notice now is it becomes very obvious to me now that i use hand planes so much more frequently when a piece has been over sanded for example the corners or the arises of a, of a table apron will have a a really strong rounded look to them when you you know i really want them to be a little bit more crisp and well defined the hand plane will leave them nice and crisp. These days, I'll hand plane the surfaces, and you know, if I'm doing like a table apron, I'll hand plane it, and then I'll just break the corners with you know a little bit of 220 or 320 grit sandpaper just to break that corner. Um, and really, that's if you know if it's a uh, something curved that I can't hit with a hand plane. If it's just a straight apron, I may not even bother sanding it at all. Um, you know, I might just hit the corner once or twice with a hand plane just to take that arras, that sharp corner off so it doesn't break. Um, but I want to try and maintain those crisp edges. So watching out for over sanding is a, another thing that I try to do and avoid these days. Another thing that jumps out at me when I look at some of my older projects is the hardware. Um, what I've learned over the years is not to skimp on the hardware spend the money on decent hardware. You can always tell right away when you're dealing with cheap hardware. Hinges are loose and sloppy, the, the barrels, um, and the door will rattle. You know, you'll open the door and you can actually like move it up and down because the, the fit of the hinge barrels is so sloppy. Um, handles, you know, cabinet handles or something like that will seem just thin and, and tinny and they don't have a good substantial feel to them. Um, you know, and good, really good quality hardware can make a huge difference in a piece, especially if you're putting all this time into building it with such care, uh, to cheap out and go with junky hardware really, um, it just really doesn't do the piece justice. And, and it's one of the things that I notice about some of my older pieces right away is, uh, when I used cheap hardware and it, it really just turns me off to, to some of the pieces that I've built. And then finally, one of the other things that I, I will typically notice is uh, the joinery. Um, these days, I try not to stress too much about the joinery. 
back in the in my early days, a lot of times dovetails, you know, I fell into the trap. You want to make the dovetails look real pretty. And I found that the the more I tried to focus on making the dovetails look pretty, um, I would overlook something else in the project. And and it turns out that, you know, the only person that ever notices the joinery is me. No one else pays any attention to it whatsoever. So these days I try not to focus too much on the joinery. You know, I just use the joinery that's going to be most appropriate for the piece. Dovetails typically get covered up with molding or, or inside of a case anyway, so I don't worry about those. Mortise and tenon is usually, um, you know, blind. You usually don't see that anyway, and I'll, I'll pin them or I'll wedge them if I'm doing through mortises. But, um, you know, I, I try to focus on things that are a bit more important. For example, these days I want to focus more on the overall design, the proportion. Um, do the do the drawers graduate nicely? Um, does the you know do the do the legs look too thick for the size of the piece? Um, you know, should they be thicker? Do they look too thin and spindly? Um, things like that. You know, I, I I don't worry so much about the joinery now as I do about more the overall look, the overall proportions of the piece, and and how things are going to look when it's done you know, regardless of what joinery is used. Um, and that's something that, that I've progressed, um, as I've continued to, to do this craft, um, for the last, you know, 25, 30 years and, uh, and have really tried to focus more, you know, less on the things that woodworkers are going to look at and more, uh, the types of things that customers and end users are going to look at. How are they going to see the piece? You know, does the do the aprons look too short? Do the uh, do the legs look too spindly? Um, do the do the rails and styles look too thin or too thick? Um, you know, does the bottom is the bottom rail the same size as the top rail, or is the bottom rail a little bit wider than the top rail, giving the piece a little bit more balance? Um, so I try to look for things like that rather than worrying too much about the joinery, because in all honesty. Um, I'm pretty much the only one that ever notices the joinery anyway. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this, because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just leave a record a voicemail on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt029. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.